I'm, I'm all up for more people with a uh, small business background uh, in Parliament. I think um, you know, people bring their backgrounds into Parliament and then speak from the heart. That's when it works best. Matt, what did you think of Boris Johnson's tenure and resignation? Wow, well, that's a big one. Um, I basically think that Boris got three big things right. Um, he was he came in in order to break the impasse on Brexit. You know, the, the country had voted for Brexit, and uh, we needed to we needed to break what was basically a constitutional logjam, and he did that. And there's probably nobody else in the country who could have done that at that point. It was, you know, it was completely stuck. Um, he then obviously handled the pandemic, which is where I work incredibly closely with him. And on that, he got the big calls right. One, uh, the vaccination effort, uh, which, well, you know, we were the first country in the world to vaccinate. And he gave me all the support I needed to make that happen. Um, and then that in turn allowed us to basically be the first major country to get out of the pandemic on the other side because we vaccinated rapidly and repeatedly. Um, and then he also corralled the, um, the, the, the West to oppose Putin after the invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, um, he's, he's a totally extraordinary politician and everybody's got a view on him, usually a strong view one way or the other. Um, but if you sort of step back from his uh, three years in office, those are the... Those are the things that stand out. Um, and, and the sad irony is that for somebody who could accomplish really big things, uh, he then ended up having to leave office um, because of, well, somebody in number 10 uh, joked to one of the newspapers that Boris Johnson's the third prime minister to have been uh, removed from office by Boris Johnson. And, you know, it's just... I, I just, what does that mean? Well, it was unforced errors. Right. You know, the big things that hit us from outside when he was prime minister, notably COVID and the war, uh, you know, he handled. the, the But but unforced errors um, meant that, the you know, his cabinet lost confidence in him, the party, uh, the parliamentary party lost confidence in him, and, and, and that meant he had to go. Um, any specific unforced errors you thought might have been big in his downfall? Well, the two obvious ones were Partygate and then the how he dealt with the um, the accusations around Chris Pincher. Right. You know, and that's, I mean, that, that was obviously the proximate cause that led to members of his cabinet to, to resign. Mm. Was it true, I couldn't get a straight answer, if the um, penalties for Partygate were £50 fines? Uh, the, uh, I don't know. No. Don't know. Because it seems a bit unpenal, doesn't it? Unfair that that would be the only penalty for... Oh, no, in the law, the, the fine started that and then went up, but, you know, he was only fined for one of the events. I don't, it's not anything I know much about, though. Okay. Um, obviously, right now, there's um, a race for the yeah. new Prime Minister, so it's yeah. exciting timing. So, um, do you want to talk about that? Who you think's got a good chance? Who would you back? Yeah. So I've just announced I'm going to back Rishi Sunak. Ah. Yeah. Is I'm, this breaking news? Exactly. No. About about an hour ago, I've just announced that. Um, and the reason is that I think 
he is the one who can provide the most uh, you know, solid leadership, uh, both competent and charismatic, basically, and bring people together. I think he can appeal to, you know, to north and south, to urban and rural. Um, and, you know, I've worked with him really closely. You know, he was the chancellor when I was health secretary in the pandemic, possibly the most difficult times for governing uh, since the war. And I've worked with him, you know, and he is up to it. And he's dealt with massive challenges. And he's just, he's, he, you know, he's, got, he's calm. Uh, and he's got what it takes. And what challenges has he dealt with that you think prepares him for the job? Oh, well, the number one thing that he accomplished in that period was setting up the furlough scheme in such a short amount mm. of time. You know, I was dealing with the health side of things, the economic consequences of the decisions we were having to take to keep people safe and alive were massive. And we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to cause a mass unemployment, uh, which is what would have happened without furlough. So uh, Rishi had to get that scheme up and running in no time. And then the really difficult challenges of basically how you fund the uh, 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 something that hasn't, you know, is bigger than anything that's happened since uh, the end of the war. Um, that was a that was a real challenge. Um, and you know, the fact we had the lowest business bankruptcies and we came out of the pandemic um, with very low unemployment is down to Rishi and the decisions that he took. So those are some of the biggest decisions that anybody takes, whether they're a prime minister or chancellor of the exchequer, uh, frankly. And he took it. He took those decisions with great, um, uh, with great calm and credibility. It must have been really hard with COVID trying to move things forward in probably what normally would take a lot longer in a short period of time. Yeah. So can you give us an insight yeah. into that, how yeah. you had to push things through differently and more quickly. Yeah, so there were some things that we had to move incredibly fast on. Some of them we successfully moved fast on. Some of them, um, the situation moved faster than we could get going, right? And the latter is, uh, an example is testing. You know, we grew testing from almost nothing. One of the first things that happened in January was actually developing the test itself. You mean vaccine testing? No, I mean, the, oh. the, you know, testing, you know, the thing shoved up your nose, testing oh, right, for COVID. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, the problem was that the pandemic you know, expanded faster than the testing capacity. But eventually we ended up with this massive testing capacity. So by the end, other countries are saying we want to be like um, like the UK with the lateral flow tests available all the time. Um, on the vaccines, we obviously had to move incredibly fast on that. It normally takes five to 10 years and we did it in under a year. Um, I'd say there's a couple of reflections I've got. Number one is a, a, a leadership style, which is that especially in something like a pandemic, when the mission is really clear to everybody, you have to then trust people and delegate to take the decisions they need to. So, you know, you set out the mission, set out where we're going, and then you say, now, you know, get on with it and tell me if you've got a barrier in the way that I can help you remove. And that was the attitude that I tried to take, for instance, with the vaccine program. You know, we had brilliant scientists, we had the NHS on the rollout, um, we had all the pharmacies who did, who were critical to rolling out as fast as we did. And uh, if you tried to micromanage that from the centre, it would have been impossible. Instead, it was about trying to empower people to move as fast as possible. Second thing is the use of uh, modern technology and data. You know, 
we had the fastest vaccine rollout in the in the the first vaccine rollout in the world, and then the fastest actual rollout in Europe, because we started with the getting the data right, so we knew who to in, invite when. You know, I don't know how long it took you to get your vaccine. Normally about fifteen minutes, shortest time waiting for an NHS appointment in your life. That is the that is what normally people tell me about it. Mm. And that was because we started with the with the with understanding the data and making sure we had the data right, and then we built on top of that. So getting the delegating so that you give people the freedom to just get on with it as fast as they can, um, and then making sure that you get the, the the data right. Those two things went hand in hand. So now you've learned all that. Do you think we'll see quicker, more bold leadership decisions? Or do you think we'll go back to how oh, slow God, it was? Yeah, well, I really hope we hold on to that. It's a really important point. I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, in the in the in the confines of the health space, for instance, you know, there's no reason that clinical trials need to take as long as they used to, because we've learned how to uh, learn things in in parallel rather than in series. Um, and it's really important that we don't just go back to the old ways of doing things. And then more broadly across uh, across Whitehall. You know, we managed to take decisions really quickly and we showed people that, you know, you can make change fast. But you need this combination of a clear mission that that people are signed up to um, and a a clear direction of travel. Why didn't you put yourself forward for prime minister? (laughs) That's nice of you to ask. (laughs) You know, um, I'm not in a position to. I think Rishi will do an excellent, excellent job. And uh, I, th- I think a number, actually, of the candidates, I've worked closely with them all. I think a number of the candidates would do an excellent job. But of them, I'm sure that Rishi is the best. And what do you think his chances are of winning? I don't know. Uh, pretty strong, you know, because the evidence shows he's, he is best placed to, um, to win a general election, which is important. Um, but there's others as well. There's others who are... Are very talented. Who's you know, a lot of people say this massive, you know, what do they call it? The runners and riders, the uh, people call it the wacky races. I think it's great. You know, I think the fact that 11 people put their names forward. <laughs> right. But, you know, the, because the it's also the most diverse field. Um, uh, more than half of the candidates are from ethnic minority backgrounds. Nobody's talking about that because it doesn't matter. It's on merit. Um, and I think that it's, I just think it's I think it's fantastic that there's lots of people who could do the job and the purpose of the contest is to, you know, um, to, to test them. Mm. And who's Rishi's biggest threat? Who else are you thinking uh, they've got a good chance? Well, I don't know. There's lots of others who, 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 would, uh, who would be able to do the job well. Um, you know, the other leading uh, contenders at the moment, you know, as we sit, it moves very fast, these things, but as we sit here in, in the, you know, the start of July, um, Liz Truss, uh, Penny Mordaunt, um, the, uh, Tom Tugendhat, you know, they're all putting in a good showing in the early stages. But, you know, nominations close in one hour's time. And uh, then the first ballot is tomorrow. So we'll see where we get to. Wow. It's- Sounds like it's exciting times at the moment. Well, it moves so fast in these leadership contests. You know, I, I stood last time. Uh, I was formally in the contest for a week, and it felt like a lifetime um, because 
you know, think you're out there making the case to so many people, uh, your colleagues, um, and um, uh, and so time moves really quickly. We'll have a debate. We'll have a, a vote uh, tomorrow, um, and then and then there'll be more votes. You know, most days until we get down to two, and then that'll go out to the to the wider uh, party in the country. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's a it's a time. I've I've said to the you know candidates who've asked me, I said just make sure you sleep, make sure you eat well. You know, running on adrenaline, but you've got to also you've got to perform at the best in your life, right? Because mm. you're putting yourself forward to be prime minister. It's not it's not a, it's not a thing to be done lightly. Mm. Do you think since COVID there was enough focus on the state of the economy, the central hub, I guess, of yeah. what drives this country? Yeah. I think it's been a massive challenge. I would say, stepping back from it, I would say that we're in a world of macro risks and micro opportunities. So there are opportunities everywhere, especially from technology. Uh, There's new developments happening faster than any time in human history. Could you give us some examples? Oh, yeah, like um, uh, uh, cultured meat, right? A whole new way of producing uh, uh, meat or protein, uh, milk, for instance, uh, that doesn't require an, the, the slaughter of an animal. Much better for the environment. At the moment, it's more expensive, but it'll get cheaper. Um, and, you know, that is that it'll never replace your, you know, your, your Wagyu steak, top end stuff. But for most minced um, uh, meat and for milk, there's no reason why a protein that is not produced by an animal, but produced essentially in a bioreactor, um, which itself can be safer as well because you get fewer contaminants. Um, you know that is a that is going to transform food production over the next decade. Um, uh, the um, what's going on in the development of space technology? Um, you know the UK is launching its first uh, satellites from UK soil at the end of this summer, including some UK companies like the ability to um, uh, to 3D print very high-value materials in space that can't be as easily printed here. Um, you know, transformative. So there's endless exciting opportunities and transformative technologies that are really coming to the fore. I mean, in, in pharma, an area I know well from my time as health secretary, the development of mRNA vaccines is going to transform how we treat cancer, for instance. Um, so there's, uh, you know, across the field, you can think of more and more field um, areas of uh, of technology that are transformative. Um, at the same time, you know, in in the old world, if you like, we have inflation running at ten percent. Uh, we have war on the continent of Europe. Um, we have most major countries uh, running a higher debt burden than for at least a generation. Um, these are very significant macroeconomic challenges. You know, my whole generation of policymakers have not personally experienced the, the you know, the, the, the need and what it takes to bring inflation down, you know, because a lot of the things that would alleviate a cost of living problem actually like. make, uh, like, for instance, loosening fiscal policy, um, actually risk making inflation worse. And the big thing about the inflation problem is, you know, a, a one-off rise in prices leading to inflation for one year is bad. But if that gets entrenched, um, then you've got a much more serious problem and it's hard to uh, squeeze it out. You know, I, I, one of the, I, I was 
I had the honour of being invited to Eddie George's uh, 70th birthday party. And um, he died very shortly afterwards. And I'd worked at the Bank of England at the same time as a junior, uh, a junior analyst when he was governor and then a private secretary. So I'd got to know him a little bit. And he, this is about 10 years ago, and he said, never let the inflation genie get out of the bottle because it's incredibly hard and very painful to get it, to put it back in. And so when you have an external big price shock like the energy price um, spike that's come from the war, you know, it's, it's, the, it, it's really hard to ensure that we, that become, that is a one-off, not a repeated, uh, repeated thing that goes on year after year. Um, so that, that's just some examples of where I think, you know, there's these extraordinary opportunities and these massive economic risks both at the same time. When you say let the inflation genie out of the bottle, do you mean let it get out of control high? Is that what you mean? Yes, I mean, let it get out of control. And I mean, let it keep going, mm. you know, because if, you know, if, it, if it goes on for, uh, for one year and then comes down again, that's a problem. If it goes on and each year you have 10% inflation a year, then mm. that's incredibly destructive, especially for people who have fixed value savings. Um, what do you think can be done in the economy to get inflation down realistically? Well, number one thing is monetary policy, you know, making sure that we uh, you know, we keep inflation under control through um, monetary policy. That's ultimately a Bank of England decision, both on interest rates and on what they do about the, the massive QE money printing that's mm. gone on over the past uh, decade or so. You know, how quickly you unwind that without causing unemployment which we've just successfully managed to avoid despite going through a pandemic so that is a very tricky tightrope that they've got to walk and if you were fully in control of the economy what would you do well i think it's very important that we ensure that on the monetary side we don't continue with uh, high uh, uh, growth because that allows the conditions for inflation to happen and then on the fiscal side, we've got to stay responsible. You've got to remain uh, credible. And um, so, of course, it's important to alleviate the pressures on people. But I think the way that actually Rishi Sunak's done it with a one-off support for people to get them through, but not giving that as an ongoing support, because that would mean that um, essentially it's a big fiscal loosening that that, uh, might provoke inflation, um, that's a way to help people with the cost of living problem without causing a longer term uh, problem that we can't get out of. Were you minister for small business at one point? I was, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'll tell you a story about that. Go. Yeah. I'm, I'm the... Um, I come from a family of small businesses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I grew up in a, in a with my mum and my stepdad running a small business and my dad separately running a running a... Small business. There was one point when all of my siblings were running startups, and the only person who hadn't actually started a business in the family was me. But I was the minister for startups, <laughs> so it tells you something about government, doesn't it? But but you know, at least I got lots of input. <laughs> wow! Yeah. So you didn't have a small business when you were minister for small business? Exactly. No, I was I was doing the you know the policy job yeah. as opposed to doing it in practice. Wouldn't it make sense if? people who are um, managing policy were also doing it in practice. 
Yeah, and you can't do it at the same time. You can't no. run a small business and be a minister at the same time um, because you'd be too busy. I mean, mm. both of them are full-time, uh, full-time jobs. Could um, you build a company and be sort of oper- uh, operationally removed? You and have then, to, yeah, you have to step back from any direct yeah. ships to be a minister, but for good reason, right? Because mm, you course. don't want to don't want to favour any individual business. Um, mm. But the, you know, so I come from a. I grew up in this startup that was growing fast, and I, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sort of imbued with the the values and what it feels like to to start a business. It's something I'd absolutely love to do. Mm. Um, what my, I was talking to one of my friends over dinner yesterday, um, and he said that you know in your family there's been a lot of success in small business. You know, made really good money out of business. Uh, yeah, the um, to a degree, um, the uh, the business that my parents, my mum and my stepdad ran, when I was a teenager, it nearly went bust. So that's the that's what made me. Before that, I was interested in the business and the technology, and that was what made me interested in the wider thing, you know, in 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 politics and how the whole system works. It was mm. what led me to the Bank of England, and being there made me realise that actually the big decisions are quite rightly taken in in uh, democratic politics in in Westminster and um, it, it, yeah, it nearly went bust but then but then went on to be perfectly successful and mm. um, did you learn anything from your parents nearly going bust and then running their businesses a huge amount yeah yeah um, I mean obviously I saw the hard work that it took but I also thought how can you have a business that's perfectly successful almost go bust because a client couldn't pay their bills. Yeah, it was a cash flow problem. Mm. And then when I became the minister... And was it an over-reliant on one single it was. A, it was it, they, were, they were quite new and growing, and they had one big yeah. client. And that often happens with mm. you know, new growing businesses. And, um, and then when I became the minister for small businesses, I put a load of effort into late payment and trying to tackle late payment problems. Yeah. Uh, because you know I'd seen it and mm. I sort of felt feel it viscerally because it, it, it you know the, my parents' business was on the line the house was on the line both of them worked in it it was mm. you know it was it, it had a big impact on me. I guess I am trying to drive at something here and what I'm trying to drive is why didn't you go down that road? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. But the reason I didn't is because I end I ended up asking myself how does the whole system work that. You you can nearly get knocked over by something completely outside of your control, and that led me to economics and the Bank of England, and then I came into 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 politics in Westminster, and then I ended up as a minister dealing with those issues. And I just find and 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 you know I find it very rewarding to be able to do things that I hope make a difference to to thousands of others in the same situation. So, you know, I could easily have ended up going into politi- into in, into business, mm. but I I got drawn into politics instead and and you know, when I resigned last year, a lot of people said, "Oh, why don't you, you know, quit parliament, and go and do something completely different?" But you know, the thing is it's very rewarding being able you can use this platform that you have here to 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 really change things. And I think that's what right across different political divides that's what most politicians are in it for I know it looks messy on the top but that's fundamentally what they're there for um, so for instance in the last year I've been running a campaign for better screening for dyslexia because I'm dyslexic mm. and I want 
kids to get that early identification that I didn't get. Um, and for instance, for fintech, right, for the UK to embrace fintech, including crypto, because we've got to be in favour of these new innovations. And, and we only succeed as a country when we are open to an embracing of new innovations, even if they're um, controversial, like you know, crypto, GM crops. You know, there's a whole series of quite controversial new technologies that we should be the we should be the the the, the leader on the pioneers. Mm. There's quite a lot of people in Parliament now, and um, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, as I am one. Yeah, and. I think a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs and small business owners feel like maybe there's not enough representation for yeah. small business in Parliament. Yeah. What would you say? Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, for me, with all these, you know, this background of mine and all these voices around me, uh, family and friends who, who are in the entrepreneurial world rather than my world, you know, the best question I can ask in terms of what needs to happen and policy is how, what can we do to make it easier for you to grow your business? And I think having more people. Who, I can tell you that. Right, really go for easily. it. I mean, get taxed down. Okay, so so the 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 number of you know, and and then which tax, right? And, and Definitely corp tax. Don't put corp, that up to twenty five percent. And EIS, you know, oh, so, bring, entre- bring entrepreneurs relief back. Okay, up to, uh, it, it was ten million, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Um, and now it's a million. So bring entrepreneurs relief back. Right. I didn't know it'd be able to pitch for entrepreneurs here, but this is great. No, but that's what I, you know. So I, so yeah. I think what you do, what you do. Is 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 you know you get ask what are the barriers to growth, and then go and try and knock those barriers mm. down because that's how you create prosperity, right? That mm. is how you create prosperity. So yes, we should have. I'm I'm all up for more people with a uh, small business background uh, in Parliament. I think um, you know people bring their backgrounds into Parliament and then speak from the heart. That's mm. when it works best. That's when yeah. it works best. It doesn't always work like that, but it often does. Yeah. Because at the moment, we've obviously got about a 20%. And that came down in the last recession. It got brought down, but it didn't this time. Yeah. Corp tax is 19, going up to 25. National insurance has gone up. Income tax is pretty high. So when you add all that in, I think Mark and I worked this out. All of that for us is 55%. And then we've got tax on what we buy. So it's really hard for small businesses, who I understand fuel most of the economy, to grow. Yeah, so the uh, income tax is coming down by a penny. And also on national insurance, the thresholds... Income tax is coming down by a penny. Yeah. And on the thresholds for national insurance, they've gone up, which means that actually it's a, sh- it's a shift. So lower paid people will be paying less national insurance. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, the broad argument is right. Um, the, uh, the critical thing is you've got to pay for it. It's got to be sustainable. Um, and As in, if there's a saving in tax, it's got to be paid somewhere else. Is that what you mean? It's got to be, it's got to be saved off expenditure mm. you know uh, and that's the challenge now there come back to the entrepreneurial spirit in government and in particular uh, use of technology you know, you can bring down the costs of a lot of things by uh, by by making them more efficient and digitizing them and that I think that is a really big push that we need to go on mm. Do, have you seen the laffer curve uh, the tax uh, laffer curve yeah of course yeah, <laughs> yeah. So do you think we're a bit beyond the optimum yeah. of that? Uh, it depends it depends which tax. Yeah. yeah. I, so just, I some, just add it all in. And I know, but, but you've got it right. Yeah. So but, but if you're looking at which one, so there's some taxes, uh, and I, I picked out EIS. Um, As in a, a, a tax benefit. Yeah, which is a tax relief, mm. um, that you know, have a massive positive impact on 
uh, on, on growth, business growth, and therefore mm. economic activity, and therefore broader tax returns, right? Mm. I think if you look at something like income tax, there isn't any evidence that we're at the inflection point in the Laffa curve. So you've got to, you've got to be a bit more, you've got to get more into the weeds of it than, uh, than that. Mm. Okay. Which one? Um, for me, corp tax going to 25% from right. 19, right. that seems quite penal. Um, you've got a lot of people in places like California and certainly a lot of my entrepreneurial friends say, it's might, maybe time to leave, which surely is the sign, isn't it, that taxes are too high because you push all of the wealth away into different countries. Yeah, yeah. We, look, we make our future. And by the way, I know you can't control this policy. I was just... No, of course, yeah. but I've got a view on it, right? Mm. We make our future by making the UK as attractive as possible to grow and also to come to, mm. okay? And that is a combination of a whole series of things that build the ecosystem, of which tax is one element. Uh, the regulatory regime is another. Uh, access to talent is another you know, incredibly important part of it. And then basically, you know, the ease of doing business and, and living here. Mm. Um, so there's a whole series of things across the board. Mm. Um, uh, for instance, and I say this as the former health secretary, having free healthcare on the NHS is a big international competitive advantage, right? Because mm. you don't have to pay your employees' uh, um, health insurance. Um, but that, so that's that's on the on the plus side, and you know basically the thing I've spent my time in Parliament arguing for over years is to try to make the ecosystem as attractive as possible. Mm. So um, I know Nigel Farage, and um, he said because I asked him about um, why don't entrepreneurs, small business owners, the millionaires and billionaires we have in this country that have start started from the ground with nothing and learned how to build enterprise and empires. Why isn't there a better communication or partnership between them and the government? Yeah. Because there's a lot of knowledge in this country yeah. from these very successful people like your um, parents and like Rishi's wife's parents, you know, have made so much money and have probably got a lot of solutions. And Nigel Farage said that government looks down on small business and entrepreneurs, especially if they're not from Eton. That's what he said. What do you think about that? I think it's total rubbish, <laughs> like much of what Nigel Farage said. <laughs> I'm still going to drive this point. Is there anything else we can do? So yes. That, so yeah. I think that the way to... I, I basically think that having formal ways that the government can listen to entrepreneurs take the concerns and then turn them into policy is really important. And how yeah. do we do that? So while I, I, I set these things up when I was in the business department, I was in the business department as number two to Vince Cable, uh, which was quite um, interesting. Uh, and then also when I was uh, the culture secretary responsible for the digital um, sector, um, making sure that we were constantly listening to what was needed and act and then and so bring the civil servants in as well and and make sure that the the government machine if you like is listening to what people what to the concerns that people have and you know the, the most prime ministers tend to have a, a, a business advisory council or what have you the real risk is that that ends up being all big corporate businesses um, whereas what you need, of course, you need to listen to the those the big guys as well. 
Um, but what you really, you know, the real uh, juice in the engine of the economy is the entrepreneurs, in my view. Mm. It's six million, is it, small businesses in yeah. the UK? Yeah, and a lot of them are, you know, small businesses that aren't particularly expanding, that are providing mm. a, a, a very nice lifestyle. But others of them are the... Are the 10, 15, 20 million a year. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and, and the future billion pound businesses, right? Mm. The, the, uh, so you, so you've, you've got to keep actively listening and then addressing policy to, uh, to, the, to the concerns that people have, basically to the barriers to growth. Do you think that's going to happen? Yes. Do you think there's enough people in politics with previous business experience? Uh, I'd, I'd be very happy to see more. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious. I mean, there is one other thing in this space, which is that, you know, the thing, one of the things I really hate is when somebody has come from a relatively humble background um, and then succeeded in business and then gets, you know, accused of, well, somehow that's kind of a problem. For me, that isn't the problem. That's a sign of success. And, it, you know, bringing it back to this, the debate about who should be the next prime minister, you know, there's a whole series of people who've come from humble beginnings, in some cases, really humble, uh, coming to this country with nothing. And, you know, if you think of Nadim Zahawi or Sajid Javid or Rishi Sunak, all from relatively humble backgrounds, all very successful, I think that is great. Mm. Matt, would you say you're on a political comeback? That's not really how I look at it. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not in a hurry. Um, and I've actually enjoyed being on the backbenches far more than I expected to, honestly. You know, I was in charge of this massive department coming out of the pandemic, a uh, you know, £150 billion budget. And the um, and then the next day, I was, you know, I'm, I'm the MP for West Suffolk. But being an MP is an incredibly uh, rewarding job and I uh, uh, and I've, I've really really enjoyed it um, you say you're not in a rush why not everyone's in a rush nowadays yeah but I've been in a rush for the first you know 42 years of my life and when you go through something like you know leading the health system through a pandemic um, and uh, then suddenly you're not it gives you perspective mm. yeah so I think it's been about 14 months since you resigned. So how's life changed since you resigned? Well, it's much more relaxed. I mean, you know, look at me. Um, they, uh, <laughs> just take a look just, at me. It's just, it's much, it's more relaxed. I can, co- you know, in my professional life, I can concentrate on the things that I really want to concentrate on, the dyslexic stuff I was mentioning earlier. Mm. You know, improving the lives of people who are dyslexic, who don't get that identification at school, which is about four in five dyslexic kids. You know, that. I've wanted to do that for ages. And so you can choose the subjects that you want to get stuck into. Um, and um, and I've really enjoyed that. But it's just, you know, the pace of life is different. You don't have a red box every night full of decisions that you have to make. Um, your time's your own to choose how to spend it. Um, and so, and so, so it is different, yeah. So I wanted to talk about the dyslexia, actually, because it seems like you're talking a lot more about it now than you used to. Yeah. Was there like a, a moment or a decision where you went, I've got to speak out about this more? And was there a reason yeah. why you didn't before? Yeah, definitely. So I was only identified at university and I then got the support essentially to relearn how to read and write. Um, and then I went quiet about it. And in my career at work, I, I didn't talk about it at all. Because I thought it was holding me back. And 
that then led to a sort of it being a secret. I really held it tight. And um, I was really worried about people finding out about it. Uh, and then obviously I became more and more of a public figure. And I just, I just hid it. But I did need to operate in a certain way as a minister because, you know, you get every, you know, your red box comes, is full of maybe, you know, 20 papers, each of which needs decisions. Uh, and then a similar amount of background reading. And, you know, it would take me an hour, an hour and a half uh, each evening. But in order to get through it, I would ask my private office to summarise each paper on a page. And then as a junior minister, it's harder because you are you can't delegate to another minister, right? But when I became Secretary of State, I said, I, I, want, I want a summary on a page so that I can decide whether I take this decision. Maybe it's something close to my heart or it's controversial or... Um, uh, or, or a really big decision that needs the Secretary of State to take the decision. Or if it was more technical, I'd delegate it to my junior minister or if they took a particular interest in it. And so I was asking my new private secretary this, it was just in a sort of ways of working chat on day one. And I said, he said, why? I said, well, I'll let you into a secret. I'm dyslexic. So I need this to be able to use my time effectively because I read pretty slowly. And he said, Matt, I'm dyslexic too. He said, and you've made it to the cabinet whilst you're dyslexic. You've got to tell people about this. And I said, no, hold on. No, no, I'm, no I'm, I haven't done that. He said, no, no, you've got to. Because you will be able to show children who are dyslexic that they can make it. And so he introduced me to something called the Government Dyslexic Network, I think it was called. And... I went privately to speak to them and I got such a positive feedback from all these mostly civil servants saying uh, thank you for talking about this and they really encouraged me to go public and when I went public um, it was uh, it was like uh, an incredibly positive reaction of people saying uh, you know thank you for having the gumption to do that and to and to talk about it, and, and lots of lots of letters, emails from parents of dyslexic children in particular, and um, and you know, I got invited to a few things, and um, the, I went to I was invited to meet the Swedish royal family who are dyslexic, and you know that, it was a real sort of affirmation, and 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 now I'm quite widely known as uh, as somebody who's dyslexic, and then I thought, well, now I'll try to do something about it. Uh, and about about the problems that I face that lots of other uh, children still face now, and we need to fix. So that's the story. It was a, it was it's been really life affirming, and it's allowed me to sort of relax about a big something that you know I kept buttoned up about. Mm. What were you scared of if you were to tell people? Well, it was kind of a sense of shame. It was a there was a practical thing. I was worried about what people would think as me as a professional. As in that you may not be able to do your job, is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. And then, and then, but it was deeper than that. It was emotional more than that. It was a sense of, and completely wrong, uh, wrong you know, misplaced sense of, of shame and embarrassment about it. One of the first people to congratulate me was, was uh, Michael Hesseltine. Right. Although there's a funny story about that, which is that he texted me. I didn't have his number. I got this text um, saying, you know, well done on on coming out as a, <laughs> as a, um, as a dyslexic. 
Um, he said, uh, I'm sure my dyslexia helped me because because I mean, he, he's worse than me. And so because his reading is so poor, it helped him focus on the big issues, the big questions. And um, but I didn't have his number, so I wanted to save it in my phone. Mm. But I couldn't sell his bloody surname because <laughs> I because I mean, which way around is the L and the E? Mm. I've got absolutely no idea. I had to look, look at Mike in your phone. Mike H. <laughs> yeah. well, that's my dad's name. So that'd be unhelpful. I put it. So I um, yeah, I had to look it up on the internet to see how you spell it. Right. What would you say to people um, who are maybe dyslexic or any other thing that they hold shame around? that they're worried about talking about, but something inside them says that they must talk about it. What would you say to I'd those say, people? I'd say, go for it. I'd say, there's, you but know... But you didn't for 20 no, years. No, I know. And, and society is so much more open to people being themselves these days, which is a really good thing. And, you know, the, that phrase coming out, you know, is obviously, it's much, much easier to come out as a dyslexic than come out as, for instance, gay. Um, but it, it, is, it is a smaller version of the same thing. Um, and um, you people should go for it. And do you know what? Far fewer people will be surprised than you imagine. And people are really supportive. You know, I think society's changed enormously in the last couple of decades to essentially want people to be themselves. And we're incredibly tolerant as a society. Not everybody. And social media is you know, riddled with intolerance. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, some of the ugly voices are the loudest but real people you know who you actually interact with um they they will they will support you and anyway what really matters in life is the small number of people you're really close to you know your true friends and your family and what they think of you and for everybody else just be yourself and if they like it great and if they don't you know, there's plenty of others. Mm. And, and, and I, I think that's a, a really fulfilling way to live your life, actually. So I've got many friends in business who've made hundreds of millions or billions and they're dyslexic. Yeah. And they've all said to me that their dyslexia was a strength. Yeah. Because it got them out of the classroom and into maybe the playground selling stuff. Right. Or it taught them people. Yeah. Skills. Thinking laterally, making connections. You've got to work around a load of problems. Um, it's quite, it's you know, it's quite well uh, documented. They mm. reckon that about forty percent of um, successful business people uh, counted as having made something that has a, is worth more than a million um, is um, are, are, are dyslexic. Forty percent. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, but yeah. similarly, more than half of people in prison. And right. uh, so you know, if you've got that that extra, you know. Uh, spark and you get the support you need then you can you can you can succeed mm. um but also you know we've got to be you know honest about it a lot of people who don't get the support they need end up not being able to read which is the number one predictor of whether you end up in the criminal justice system or not wow so that's why this the support in schools is so important. So not being able to read is a bigger factor than being born into poverty or abusive parents. Well, 57% of pre- people in prison have a reading age under the age of 11. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we've got to do something about that as well. Um, and the, but, you know, it is a, it is a, a, a real, um, it, it's a, a real motivator for getting this right. 
because you can either be hugely successful or you know everything can go wrong mm. it's you're more likely to go one way or the other less likely to be in the middle of the pack wow so i think there's a lot of critics towards politicians and one thing i said to myself coming here today was i want to ask you this question because i think it's really important so what do the masses misunderstand about politics Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and politicians in particular. Mm. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that if you ask most, if you ask people, the survey after survey shows this, that people like their local MP, but if you ask them about politicians as a whole, they're, they're, they, they don't like them. Um, and, and add all those views together and the, the result is completely inconsistent. Uh, but, you know, it is this problem that when there's something bad happens or there's a negative it understandably becomes a big story. Um, and by the way, I'm not complaining about that because the accountability is really important for keeping us on our toes. You know, I think it's one of the reasons that we have one of the least, um, you know, the most honest systems in the world in the UK. You may not believe that, but it's true. It's because it's we're so um, scrutinised. And, you know, I've been through a fair degree of scrutiny myself. Some of it true, some of it not true. The the, the, the fact is, I still believe in a free press after all of that because the accountability is important. Um, but it does mean that people are sceptical of their politicians. Mm. Um, I, but, you know, at home I've got Gilray political cartoons from the 1700s on my wall. You know, it's been like this for hundreds of years and it's a better than the alternative. Mm. One thing I was talking with my business partner on the way down was that um, it must have been so hard for you with COVID and lockdown. You know, I have been quite vocal about how I think taxes should have come down and support for small business should have been more. But I'm biased because I am one and all yeah. my followers are one. And there was so much support. There was more support than almost anywhere else in the world. But anyway. Yeah. And and I'm here to hear your side, not bark about mine. I've done that enough. Yeah. But it must have been so hard. And... Could anyone have done any better? And you've never been through that before. And especially in your position with the role you had. Yeah, nobody. Right at the centre of it. Right, nobody had been through it before. So what was it like in the middle of it? How hard was it? How much did you have to work? How scared were you? Well, the number one thing is that we, especially at the start, we knew so little about it. And making those huge judgments on very, very scant data was really tough. So I, I, yeah, I, still, I remember so clearly the time I had to say, Prime Minister, we're going to have to ask people to stop all unnecessary social contact. You know, that was a big moment. And at that point, the number of people you know, who died was, was in the dozens. I mean, it was, it was much smaller than it then became. And, um, and so we had to make these huge calls on, on very little data. That was the absolute overriding thing. But... You know, the times I was most worried were the times twice after we'd gone into full-blown lockdown, but whilst cases were still going up. Because both times, we didn't know if the actions that we'd taken were going to be enough to turn it around. Um, because we'd never done it before. And the second time around, we were on the new variant, what was then called the Kent variant. Um, and we didn't know if doing the full-blown lockdown that we'd done the previous spring, with a few minor amendments like to encourage people to do more exercise you know um the second main lockdown we still didn't know if that was going to work because the camp variant was so much easier to pass on and they were the times i was really worried mm. 
Wow. And um, how hard did you work? I mean, you must have been doing all days, all nights, all yeah. through. Well, yeah, we, and we were really regiments about it. We, you know, we treated it like, um, you know, like you're training in a sports competition. Um, so I would get up at six and I'd, I'd then see what had happened overnight, anything I had to respond to, um, and then have breakfast with the kids, then go in about half seven, work all the way through. And I would always try to be in bed by midnight because, you know, you can you can get through on less than six hours sleep occasionally, but not over a you know, <coughs> multi-month mm. period. Um, so I had, they were my sort of anchors. Mm. Uh, and, and sometimes I could get a bit more than that, but, but um, alarm at six and then wow. make sure that midnight was like the, 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 the cutoff point. Mm. So let's do a quick fire round to finish okay. if you're up for it. Okay. Uh, I've got a few questions. 30 seconds is normally about the right length of answer, but it's up to you. Okay. And we've got six minutes. Um, so who's the best politician you've ever met and why? Barack Obama. Because of his ability to appeal to such a broad range of people. What's the best investment you've ever made and why? Best investment was the effort I put into winning my seat in Parliament in West Suffolk. Because that's the basis of my entire time here. Uh, did Brexit work? Oh, uh, Brexit is f- now full of opportunity and we've got to go out and seize it. We've changed some of the rules that have held us back, but there's so many EU rules that need still need to be uh, need to be sorted. And so Brexit is an opportunity to be globally competitive. If you could change one thing in politics and how it works, what would it be? Uh, I'd make there be um, less inter-party acrimony and more overt cross-party working. How would you do that? Well, the challenge is that it's when you do have cross-party working, and sometimes uh, there's a lot, it's it's fragile because, you know, one side or the other can quite easily, you know, come off it. Mm. Um, And, um, you know, I'm not really into the, especially after what I've been through, I'm not really into the sort of positioning of politics. I'm into politics as solutions. Mm. If you were to have your entire political career again, what one thing would you do differently? <sighs> what one thing? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. This is great. I'm not, I, 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 mm, answer on a postcard. There's a great, there's a great Maggie quote, which I'm not, this is not my answer, but she was asked this question. I think it's very funny. And she said, well, I thought I did it rather well the first time. <laughs> Anyway, that isn't my answer. I'll get back to you on that one. Um, there's, there's, oh, come on, there's countless things. You know, um, one of the things that, one of the things I really feel for, um, and I will always, always regret happened, is how at the start of the first lockdown, the way the rules were interpreted meant that sometimes people didn't go to their spouse's funerals, parents didn't go to their children's funeral, and... Um, And that was not intentional, but that is how the rules were interpreted. Once we saw it happening, we changed them pretty quickly. But it, that, you know, I I still can see the pictures of when that was, of of some of the funerals that that were, uh, where that was reported to me. And it really, really hurts. Mm. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Um, Standing for Parliament. Who's the greatest leader in history and why? That's a great question. 
Um, and it's very hard not to answer with a with a really obvious person, and the, that obvious answer is Churchill. Uh, the reason is that he took risks. He said exactly what he thought. He was willing to be out of office uh, because he um, stuck to his guns. And when the moment came, he 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 stepped up to the plate, and he was brave. Uh, so that's uh, uh, you know I know it's an obvious answer, but it's an obvious answer because it is the obvious answer. Um. Can you, I like to have questions that help people with outcomes and solutions, especially okay. if people have had difficulties. So um, you've had to deal with public uh, humiliation or shame. What tips would you give for people having to deal with those kind of feelings? Um, the thing that matters is um, it, it, the thing that matters is what the people who love you think, not what the public thinks, especially when for a public figure, your private life is dragged into the public domain. Um, that, uh, I mean, people were generally really um, uh, forgiving and thoughtful about it, media less so, um, but um, it really teaches you that. So this show's called Disruptors. What does yeah. the word disruptive mean uh, to you? I love the word disruptive, but it's one of the reasons I came on. I love it because it means... Uh, it means changing established ways of doing things. You know, one of the things I love about crypto uh, is that people from a bedroom can start institutions that disrupt some of the oldest, most established organizations in the world. Um, I, I love uh, challenging the way things are done to see if we can find a better way of doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, that is where human progress comes from. And, and I love it. Makes me feel warm inside. If we want to maybe support your de- dyslexia campaigning yeah. or any campaigning or um, anywhere where you're um, promoting or on social or anything, where should we go? We should go to um, uh, Matt, Matt Hancock, my website. Uh, what's the, ex- is it just your name.com? It, it's Matthew, Matt hyphen Hancock.co.uk. Yeah. And the, um, uh, but you can get there if you search my name. Yeah, you get a load of other stuff too. <laughs> uh, the um, uh, but the um, the thing you should do in the short term is uh, support my bid to go up Mont Blanc in the next couple of weeks. Wow, I'm going up Mont Blanc in a fortnight. I love a big challenge, and I'm raising money for the Cambridge Children's Hospital, uh, which is a very very good cause. And where can we go to donate there? Uh, if you go to Just Giving, search for my name. Yeah. Then, uh, then you can you can give to that. Matt, thank Fantastic. you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.